Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monty. I pulled out somebody refer me to an article from the September 2015, the current edition of The Atlantic magazine. And I think it's the cover, um, the, the focus article called The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. And um, yeah, I think I, I, I've only got two or three. I've got the first two and the very last paragraph. I just wanted to read those. And then they've got a list of, of things. I think you, you're going to find this kind of interesting, but it's – yeah, this idea, this kind of hypersensitivity that seems to be really um, taking sort of top seed when it comes to how we interact with people. And I just wonder, I wonder about this in light of some of our recent discussions about um, Christian apologetics and uh, yeah, just in terms of my time recently at Labrie and seeing what seems to be some of this and in, in, in some of my discussions with, with, with Greg Lowry and something's, you know, that he's seen some of this, it seems as well. Um, when I just read the first two and the last, uh, paragraph and stop, stop me if you want to, you know, interject at some point there. Something strange is happening at America's colleges and universities. A movement is arising undirected and driven largely by students to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. Last December, Janine Souk wrote in an online article for The New Yorker about law students asking her fellow professors at Harvard not to teach rape law, or, in one case, even use the word violate, as in, that violates the law, lest it cause students distress. In February, Laura Kipnis, a professor at Northwestern University, wrote an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education describing a new campus politics of sexual paranoia and was then subjected to a long investigation after students who were offended by the article and by a tweet she'd sent filed title <laughs> by a tweet she'd sent filed title nine complaints against her. What's that? I don't I don't know. It must be some sort of you know, harassment or I've never heard of a title. I don't know. I've heard of it. I just can't remember what it is. But okay. Okay. In June, a professor protecting himself with a pseudonym wrote an essay for Vox, V O X, describing how gingerly he has to teach. And this is a quotation. I'm a liberal professor and my liberal students terrify me. The headline said a number of popular comedians, including Chris Rock have stopped performing on college campuses uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Bill Mayer have publicly condemned the oversensitivity of college students saying too many of them can't take a joke. Now, this is, this is the part that really, this is, the, you know, the intro. Well, this is the part that I really found interesting. Two terms have risen quickly from obscurity into common campus parlance. Microaggressions, it's all one word, are small actions or word choices that seem on their face to have no malicious intent but are thought of as, as a kind of violence nonetheless. For example, by some campus guidelines, it is a microaggression to ask an Asian American or Latino American, where were you born? 
because this implies that he or she is not a real American. Trigger warnings, this is the second term, trigger warnings, are alerts that professors are expected to issue if something in a course might cause a strong emotional response. For example, some students have called for warnings that, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, Chinao Akbi's Things Fall Apart describes racial violence and that F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby, pardon me, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby portrays misogyny and physical abuse so that students who have been previously victimized by racism or domestic violence can choose to avoid these works, which they believe might trigger a recurrence of past trauma. Hence the trigger warnings. So I'm going to skip to the end of the article and just kind of to lay this all out. So at the very end of the article, uh, the authors write, Thomas Jefferson, upon founding the University of Virginia, said, This institution will be based on the illimitable freedom of the human mind. For here we are not afraid to follow truth wherever it may lead, nor to tolerate any error so long as reason is left free to combat it. We believe that this is still and will always be, that, that, that was the end of the quote, pardon me, the best attitude for American universities. Faculty, administrators, students, and federal government all have a role to play in restoring universities to this historic mission. So we have these two kind of, not just ideas, but kind of really prevalent uh, ways of in, kind of engaging with subject matter, these microaggressions and these trigger warnings. And they, got, they finished off the article. I really like this. <laughs> they finished off the article with 12, um, and the title is Common Cognitive Distortions. So my thinking on this is, one of the things that I experienced when I went to Labrie last, and I was there in, uh, you know, last year in 2014, was this idea that um, hurting someone's feelings is something that we can't do. And that, you know, um, it's impossible to be sensitive to someone and be critical of the way they think, what they say, or how they act at the same time. And so this is a really interesting phenomenon. I think this is kind of a cultural phenomenon that we're seeing in universities, but we're also seeing it in Christian places where this idea of um, being sensitive or promoting people's feelings to first place is the right way to go and that that should dictate how we interact. And I wanted to read a couple of these these cognitive distortions to you and see what you think they're they're super super they're very short it's just the title so the first number one mind reading and then it's going to give a description and then an example so mind reading you assume that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts and then the example is quote he thinks i'm a loser end quote and then another one number three is catastrophizing you believe that what has happened or will happen will be so awful and unbearable that you won't be able to stand it. This Quote, is like the perfect recipe for having a horrible relationship with your significant other. <laughs> well, <laughs> like seriously, labeling, discounting positives, negative filtering, overgeneralization. <laughs> oh, I forgot you've got it right there in front of you. Yeah, blaming. It? What if emotional? Like, yeah, this is boy. If you followed all twelve of these, you could just end any relationship you have. 
Well, that's it exactly. And I think too, I mean, it's not just ending that relationship. It's you. Not ending, but I mean, it will not be a good one. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you're going to, yeah, you seriously threaten any relationship if you have many or certainly all of these. I I think really any of these, if you have them strongly, but I guess the thought that I'm having is that this is a type of, these are types of, you know, the authors call them cognitive distortions that also put us in a position simply not to be people or selves that are able to engage well. And I would say not simply with others, but with ideas, right? And this is why I think what the authors of this uh, Atlantic article are focusing on. It's like, hey, all of a sudden ideas and the value, the validity, the truthfulness of some of these ideas take second place relative to how this might impact somebody. But that seems like a really fine line. Tell me more what you think about that. Well, I have never experienced, you know, abuse or trauma or some of these other things that it sounds like some of these universities are trying to steer around in terms of not triggering mm-hmm. triggering people. Mm. So how, how do you decide or how do you know when someone can handle to be triggered and when it's not a good idea. And I haven't had those experiences, so I have I don't know. Yeah. Which I would see is different than hurting someone's feelings. Right. So you're suggesting that <sighs> Yeah, but I don't know. Like honestly, John, I was finishing up my third year. Right? I was in nearly done first semester of third year undergrad. My father and brother die. I was dealing with the whole abuse thing through kind of, I really kind of got into it and really started to understand what my childhood was about and uncover some of these things that I had hidden from myself because they were just too scary and painful um, after first year. So all second year, but no, I, I don't know. I think it cuts both ways. I was in a course and I remember this was a 17th century French literature course. So my undergrad was a French major, Russian minor, kind of modern languages degree. And um, this guy was astute and was was a tough marker. And I, I I didn't read much more of the book. I read a very little bit of the book. It was it was actually um, um, Marcel Proust's uh, The Beginning of um, A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, In Search of Lost Time. Uh, I think it was Swan's Way, the first book. I think that's what the first one's called. And I'd read hardly any of it. But it 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 rhymed off a couple things about memory and uh, remembering things, being sort of caught off guard and being transported. My sort of experience of that was entirely negative and the experience that Proust writes about is entirely positive. But I just wrote about the what little using what little I had and leveraging my own personal experience this is my experience of abuse and remembering abuse and kind of being caught up with that. And I got a great mark on the, on the paper. So, I mean, I don't know, I guess you, it seems to me that if somebody's in the middle of a traumatic situation that, you know, you can, that's, that's what the administration's there for. Say, Hey, you know what? So I gotta, I gotta come clean on some of this, right. And say that this is, what's going on in my life right now. And for these reasons, I cannot handle, um, I can't handle anything. 
So it, it just seems a little... <sighs> I want to use some really strong language here. I don't know if that's... If I can do that. It, 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 it seems really... It seems like a huge cop-out to me. You know, remembering from myself in that place. And I did go to the administration and I did say, hey, this is what's going on. And hey, I can substantiate this. And, uh, you know, I, I got what I needed, which were extensions and whatever. Uh, dropping a course past the date without penalty, um, that sort of stuff. But, you know, when you can't function because there's something really significant in your life, you can't function. You know, and you're, you're doing your best just to keep yourself fed and to do like all the basic stuff. So are you saying then that, or is the point of the article that we're, we're protecting people, we're shielding them from the full force of what reliving some of these experiences is. And therefore people have to tiptoe around. And then at the same time, would you say that maybe they're not able to like deal with these things because they're not hitting them head on? Well, I guess it's mostly, I would approach it in, in two ways. One is, so you've just said, hey, I've never experienced this. So you're kind of sitting there saying, I want to be sensitive. I don't want to be like a callous person. And yeah, I feel like it would be totally, totally callous, arrogant of me to just be like, well, yeah, that really horrendous thing happened to you. But, you know, just get over it and just, you know, just read this book that, you know, is a mirror of your experience. Like that just, that just seems horrible to say to someone. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's going to depend on the, if you're, <laughs> you could be taking a class on, I don't know, a history class on modern atrocities. And and people in your family have just been murdered. Like, how are you gonna? How are you possibly gonna exist in that class? How are you possibly gonna be able to engage with that material? You just can't. You know, will you have some profound and incredibly valuable insights into this whole area in five, ten, fifteen years? Oh, undoubtedly, you will. If you can get through this, and it does not consume you, it does not destroy you, and you're able to move on from it, then. You know, um, I think in the areas where we are most deeply wounded, what ultimately happens is we are able to give most to others in those areas, in those same areas, as we ourselves have to move through these things to, to gain some understanding of them, to find some peace with them, to, you know, uh, offer some amount of forgiveness and embrace some amount of forgiveness of ourselves for not being able to stop them. But... I don't think anybody in that type of situation, you know, I certainly didn't have to do that. None of the books I was reading were on, uh, I don't know, parental sexual abuse or on parents killing their kids. So whatever, they weren't, you know, easy books to read necessarily, but nothing that touched on my particular specific kind of pain points. But again, I think that that's, you know, that's a place in time sort of thing. And maybe that is even saying, hey, I'm... This is not the major for me. I, I need to move out of this major. I am moving into a different subject altogether. I'm taking a year off. I'm going to travel, right? I'm going to get my head straight or I don't have money to travel. I'm going to work. I can't work. Okay, I'm going to try and volunteer. What you know, In extreme situations, hopefully there's enough uh, support through some sort of community 
for people to not have to try to, you know, be machines and push through in situations where it's just not reasonable. And yet they're also able to, you know, they don't have to say to themselves, I've got no other options, right? Hopefully they've got other options. So I'm not saying that they should push through by re-engaging specifically with the areas of, of acute, you know, stress, pain, or trauma, and, and often it would be trauma. But I am thinking that for many people, you know, myself included, my thought at the time was, you know, the world's turned upside down, um, but I don't want to be here forever, right? I'll drop a course. I'll drop a course next semester. I'll get some extensions, but I don't want to extend this forever. I know I want to get this degree and I want to get the heck out of here because, you know, oftentimes if something like that happens to you, you know, it happened to me when I was in university and therefore, at least for that particular university, it's no longer a place I want to be. You know, the university didn't cause these accidents. They didn't cause these problems, but they were, that's where I was when I experienced them, when things really came to light and things happened. And so it's no longer a place I want to be. So I want to get out of there. I want to get done. Well, maybe I want to transfer to another school or I just want to get through that process. And I think, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's the people themselves, people saying, hey, you know what? I've had a really hard time and I was at this institution and, and they were insensitive to me and they were callous and this has messed up my life. Or if it's other people who said, you know, my friend had this happen or my sister or, you know, this person I've heard about. In other words, if it's people outside of the situation who are trying to sort of estimate in a generous way, I think, that's the intention, what might be best for people. And yeah, I mean, this happened to, to me 25 years ago. And even then, you know, the university was not, you know, once they have, once they've got all the information and all the evidence in front of them, I, I, maybe I was lucky, but I don't think so. It's like, okay, it's obvious. This guy can't do this. We got to cut him some slack. That's what we're here for. Yeah, I don't know. How, what do you think about that? Yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, I like what you're saying about we'll take time off or, you know, make some type of alternative uh, arrangements. And, you know, reading, maybe I kind of see, I haven't been able to read this article in depth or study mm-hmm. it, but I think I see where it's leading. So I'm I'm down a little bit, maybe about halfway. It says, there's a saying common in education circles. Don't teach students what to think. Teach them how to think. The idea mm-hmm. goes back as far as Socrates. Today, mm-hmm. what we call the Socratic method is a way of teaching that fosters critical thinking, in part by encouraging students to question their own unexamined beliefs as well as the received wisdom of those around them. Such questioning sometimes leads to discomfort and even to anger on the way to understanding. Mm-hmm. And then this seems to be the, so, but then it says, but the vindictive protectiveness teaches students to think in a different way. So the vindictive protectiveness is this shielding and don't trigger people and yeah. don't be controversial. And then it says, it prefer, this is, I thought this was interesting. It prepares them poorly for professional life, which often demands intellectual engagement with people and ideas one might find uncongenial or wrong. Mm. The harm may be more immediate too. 
A campus culture devoted to policing speech and punishing speakers is likely to engender patterns of thought that are surprisingly similar to those long identified by cognitive behavioral therapists as causes of depression and anxiety. Hmm. The new protectiveness may be teaching students to think pathologically. Mm -hmm. So now I'm taking this kind of in a different direction, but this whole, I mean, this is what we're all about, you know, Mm -hmm. unexamined beliefs, (laughs) questioning them, talking about them. And it's interesting to me that the path that that leads, if you go down that path of not, of unexamined belief and the discomfort. Yeah. There was another article that I saw that I'd like to delve into that was all about experiencing discomfort. I think it might Mm. tie into this one, do that another time, but know that, that avoiding the discomfort leads to depression and anxiety. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think you honed in on some really, yeah, some core ideas in the article. And I think these are really sound ideas too. Um, I, I remember, you know, for as much as I, 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 obviously there are parts of my undergrad that I just, they were just all a blur because it, it was just, you know, getting food in my mouth and going to bed and really sleeping and those types of types of things. But I think my most distressing time was in my graduate degree. I remember doing a class on content. It was my first semester in grad school and I had two classes actually that were really problematic for me. And I was, I remember being on the phone with my mentor, uh, Greg Lowry, and I must, you know, I must have talked, like, I must have raised this half a dozen times. You know, I cannot stay in this course. Uh, I, this is just, this is really difficult. This, this prof, I'm putting forward ideas. You know, I was in a course with, with one prof for my Old Testament. I would go down and talk with him and, you know, during break or after class. And he's a very engaging fellow. And very willing to talk, you know, has his views, but but would hear you out. And I felt, you know, shut down after shut down, shut down. And this is a term paper course. This is the first course I've ever, this ever been a term paper course. And I'm like, if, if this guy thinks all of my ideas are crap, like I am not here to fail a course. And I'm putting in a lot of effort here. And, you know, um, my mentor just said, hey, I think you need to stay in this course. He's not shooting you down. He's, he's disagreeing with you outright. And he's saying, you're going to have to present this to me in a well-argued form for me to be able to, to really give this the time of day. And, and it, it took me a while to recognize, A, that's a stylistic thing. This is a, this is a Brit. So, you know, in, in, in British schools, uh, and certain, certainly in some of the, the, um, the, the higher tier schools, this kind of almost adversarial approach is is much more common than it is in North America. And then B, well, okay, this is how he does things, and maybe he's 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 not able to kind of take in everything I'm saying. And he's saying, hey, okay, you've got some material here, put it into a paper. Let me see it there. So, but I guess my point is, going through that experience was incredibly helpful for me, right? And it was, it was, it really sucked that it came right off the bat. I got into, um, my courses and it's, it's the first semester of this graduate degree and two out of my three courses are problematic. And I'm thinking, what the heck? Like, is this me? 
if the majority of my courses aren't working out, there's just two different profs here. And, you know, later I realized, okay, with the one course um, that I'm not mentioning, it's the, it was the prof, you know, the prof and I don't get along. And then I start hearing more stories of other students who are telling me the same stories that I'm telling them and realizing, okay, well, okay, good to know. I didn't know that before. But with the other one, some people did get along well with him and some people didn't, but he had a certain style and a certain way of approaching things. And, um, he, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote the paper. I wrote exactly the paper that in bits and pieces I had presented to him during the breaks in the class all semester long. And to the best of my knowledge, it's, it's, it, it's the only paper that got an A plus in the whole class. And I worked like heck on that paper and I gave a lot of effort and I spent a lot of time. But a big part of that was going through the apprehension, the fear, the, you know, here I am back in uh, graduate school after a very long time out of university. Um, what is this all about? How can these things that I've been working on and thinking on and getting good response from, from um, my Libri contacts be seen as so kind of, you know, off base by this prof. But yeah, I don't think it, I think, I think their point about this sort of overly sensitive way of dealing with people doesn't prepare people to, you know, do well in the workforce. It doesn't prepare them, I think, to do well in most areas of life. Well, I wonder if there's a tie into this discussion group that you're doing at your church too. So like, in other words, from what little you've told me, it sounds like the discussion is becoming more and more vibrant. Mm. Is the discussion becoming vibrant because everyone agrees? <laughs> no. Or is there like what? Because yeah, what I guess as you you were talking, I'm thinking I'm re- rereading this paragraph. I'm thinking, yeah, some of the most blah discussion environments that I can think of are the ones where. Every, there's no there's only one right answer they yeah. are not vibrant life-giving they're kind of depressing places mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well you know and there might there might be situations and 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 you know subjects of discussion where by and large we would say there is only one right answer but th- there aren't too many of them you know um most people you know it, those are the extreme cases like most people in our in our culture would say having sex with an eight-year-old is wrong there's only one right answer to, do you have sex with an eight-year-old? And the answer is no. And, and most of us would be fairly adamant on that, right? But yeah, there's a fair bit of, at this point, I think with the discussion group at the church that I'm helping, that I'm facilitating, um, I think we're getting into the content about which people disagree. And I think that people, you know, I'm working with adults and this is a community that is by and large has been together for a long time. And because of that, um, they know each other, you know, and they know uh, who, um, okay, I might not get along with this person or no, in, in past, you know, kind of there's whatever, I don't know if you could say there's been friction, but there's been disagreement or you're just aware that this person holds this view and that's not your view. Um, but I think what's happening too, it's interesting when you talked about, you know, you don't teach students what to think, you teach them how to think. 
And I think that's exactly what, what I'm hoping for in this process is that um, people will realize on the one hand what they think and then talk about why they think that way and begin investigating that. And then through a process of cultivating more of the how, they can get back to, well, okay, is this what I want to think? Yeah, so this idea of what to think rather than, like how to think rather than what to think, but getting them to understand what they actually do think, right? And then why they think that way. And then once we start talking about, well, what are some good ways of approaching this, then have them revisit and say, okay, I think this, but hmm, maybe I've come to this through less valuable, less sort of effective ways of of understanding the subject and engaging with it. No, that sounds valuable. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting too because, and I never thought about this before, but you know, you know how at Labrie, for example, you all live together, you know, and you know sooner or later, probably you're going to get stuck on a shift with so-and-so. And <laughs> you have to get along. Right. Like, not just because you're going to get, I don't know, you're going to get thrown at or something. Like, not, not, not like that would typically ever happen. But it's in your best interest because you don't want to have a lousy day, right? And you are going to get put in with somebody. And you do have to, as an adult, say, okay, well, we're on kitchen duty and, um, you know, figure out how to work this out. And the interesting thing is that this church is, is this is a very, very, very compact community. These are people who live um, the entire village doesn't span more than, you know, um, a kilometer by a kilometer. It's, it's, it's small. It's a small, small place. Um, and then there are people who are kind of outliers who are farmers in the area and might live a bit further out. But by and large, people are, are fairly, you know, close together. And yet they have very different views. And probably some of that same component that's at work in Labrie is at work in this church context. You know, so maybe that's, maybe that's kind of one way of advocating the kind of local church idea, but I think it has its benefits and that, you know, you don't, you don't burn bridges with your neighbors. So you have to be more invested. Well, yeah, I think so. And yeah, it's, it's just been interesting to me. Like, I, I think that. Um, the diversity of opinion will probably grow. You know, we've only, there are only eight or nine people in addition to my spouse and I who attend. So it's not, you know, it's about a hundred people in the church. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's 120. Um, So it's a very small portion right now. And if there were to be more people, I'm sure that we might have more, uh, greater divergence of views. But, um, Yeah, you know, and one of the things that we talked about early on in the discussion group, this is this is really funny because in um, in a mediation context, I would often refer to like starting off the mediation with the couple and say, you know, what do you need for this to be a comfortable space? And then I might throw in the word safe, but I usually don't like to lead with that word because that makes people uneasy already. Right, unless I know, and it's it's really obvious. Okay, there's been some, there's been some violence in the marriage, right? Or there's been some violence in the separation, 
And, and that's something that I would always screen for in advance. So I would know that and they would know that and they would know that I know that. And then we could use that safe word. Like I might lead with it, right? But I don't want to put things in their mind. And so it was when I started off with the group, and I may, I may have mentioned this to you already, but if I, if I didn't, um, I started off with the discussion group and um, I said the words uh, comfortable. And uh, a few minutes into it, somebody corrected me and said, well, I don't think we need to start with comfort. I think we need to figure out what's safe. So I thought that was really interesting, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe that's, that's another sort of um, thought. And I guess, you know, how do you do that in a, in a classroom environment? Is that something that really works in a classroom environment? Probably not, but it's probably not what you're going for either, right? You're not looking, most classes are not, you know, in-depth they don't consist of in-depth discussions on your personal views. And, um, you know, you're also not in a context where you're not only do you come to this class and you see this, this, these other two people that you don't, you know, agree with or get along with, but you, you happen to live next to them and et cetera, right. You, you have daily interactions with them like that. That would, that would be a totally different sort of, um, environment. And, and maybe that would call for some of this, I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm still reaching on that. I, I don't know what would call for some of these kind of attention to microaggressions and what do they call them? Uh, trigger, uh, trigger warnings. Like, I, you know, I, the other thing I would say about that too, John, is uh, what I found is that when I was in that position in my life, I became hypersensitized to these things. And that might sound like me saying, well, hey, then I need, I need trigger warnings and I need to be aware of microaggressions or so do other, or other people do. But I think what it means instead is that I'm able to see these things a long way off. You know, so because of Susan's background, she just happened the other day. Somebody walked by the street and I thought, hmm, that guy looks a little different. And I looked at Susan and I said, is that person an addict? And she said, oh, yeah, because she comes from a family of addiction. So she can spot it miles off. And her radar for that type of thing is really high, right? Just in the same way that, that my radar is really high in terms of, let's say, um, I don't know, sexual predatoriness, because that's part of, that's something that, I, that, that I've suffered, right? From my background. And so I think instead of taking things out of the hands of those who may really legitimately be triggered by something, I think we need to realize that these people are aware. You know, I became aware very quickly. This is a big trigger issue for me, and I'm going to have to be really conscious of it in my environment. And so I became, you know, kind of hypervigilant about it, and that's what tends to, most people tend to do. So I don't need somebody telling me about this book or that book. I'm going to find that out pretty quickly on my own and then decide, oh, I'm not going to read that book. Yeah, I guess it's back to that whole idea of personal responsibility, right? Yeah, there's a lot of, we should probably wrap this up. There's a lot of good stuff in this article. I highly recommend it. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. We'll have a link to it. Anything you want to add in closing? No, well, I'd like to, for next time maybe, if if you're finding some more stuff in there, it'd be great to bring that out and we can we can talk about it further. I I, I enjoyed the article too. All right. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity Podcast. 
Notes and links for this episode are at untanglingchristianity.com. We welcome your thoughts and comments both at the website and our private Facebook group. If you'd like to join the private Facebook group, let us know your email address in the sidebar of the website to receive notes and links for each episode, and we'll send you an invite to our private group. Or you can send your thoughts or request to join the group by email. Send those emails to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.